Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Episode 3, The Collapse of the Middle. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, Steve, these next couple of chapters in the book, and again, we're not following the book from a reiteration of the book per se, but just kind of using it as a framework for our discussion. You know, the heart of this book to me, before you get to the kind of the, the solution-oriented later chapters, is is really this, this collapse of the middle. And it's really summed up here. And it's both historical, but it's also contemporary at the same time. So it's, it's really an interesting, you know, it's really an interesting discussion of framing what happened. Um, and that the idea that you and I, I kind of really just first professionally bonded over the fact that the retail apocalypse was kind of a narrative. Walk me through your thinking of this retail, you know, retail isn't dead, boring retail is. Take me through the short history of time as you see it right up to today. And after we have that conversation, we've got a great special guest from Deloitte, author of the retail bifurcation uh, paper, Casey Lobos. So, but first of all, you know, take me again through your insights and, and how you think about retail, not as an apocalypse, but as a, as a transformation. Well, I think the origins of it were, well, first, way back when, when I was working at Sears and we were trying to figure out how to reposition them, what I really started to notice was we were losing a lot of market share to folks that were in some way, shape, or form discounters. You know, the more obvious ones like a Walmart or Target, but in certain categories, folks like Home Depot and Best Buy and Bed Bath & Beyond that had a stronger value equation. And we were wrestling with well, do we try to become more efficient and convenient and more value-oriented, basically? Or do we try to create what we would say today is more of an experience with more service and interesting visuals and all that kind of stuff? Because it seemed pretty clear that this middle ground um, was becoming more untenable. Now, Sears had a bunch of particular issues because of its mix of business and so forth. But Mm -hmm. it was definitely gnawing at us that it seemed like we had to pick a lane, go more strongly towards value or more, more strongly towards experience. And did that extend beyond just positioning, like pricing strategy, high-low versus every day? I mean, every day was just starting to emerge really then as, as a powerful force. But did that did that start to emerge? Because I, when, sometimes when I think of, of Sears, I didn't think of them as a high-low retailer, but uh, I always didn't think of them as a value retailer either, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we looked at, at basically everything, but I think from a positioning standpoint, were we going to be a, basically a little bit of everything for everybody, kind of middle America, or were we going to try to hone that more, um, and that would get reflected in, uh, eventually in our merchandising strategies and our pricing strategies and so forth. But it was always vexing to try to figure out, as, as competition emerged, uh, where we really fit. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. And then when I moved on to Neiman Marcus, uh, we were doing well, as were a lot of other luxury retailers. Basically, I think uh, a lot of the things we did executionally, but also riding kind of the aging, um, wealthy baby boomer sort of effect. So demographics uh, was, was helping that. And so I also started to notice, just looking at the industry more broadly, that there was a fair amount of growth in the high end. Uh, you know, pure luxury, but also some specialty retailers like Williams Sonoma. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of growth among um, the discounters as well, and and we were starting to see growth in the outlet business, off price, and and so again, this middle ground seemed like it was becoming increasingly harder. When I went out on my own in consulting and writing and speaking, I was I was partially through. 
doing some analysis, partially through working with some clients, I actually dug into this data a bit more. And I really became convinced, basically, that over the long term, it was death in the middle, that you really mm-hmm. had to pick a lane. It was just becoming increasingly hard in the face of more competition and then the growth of e-commerce and the ability to check prices and all this other stuff. It's made it harder and harder to really carve out a meaningful position. So I wrote a blog post uh, called something like Death in the Middle. In my speaking and consulting, I started to talk about what I called retail's great bifurcation and this idea that there was success at either end of a spectrum, but this middle ground was, was starting to collapse and then, uh, and we'll talk about this with, with Casey in a minute, um, <laughs> the folks at Deloitte produced this study on mm-hmm. retail's bifurcation. They, of course, being a huge firm, were able to collect a lot more data and go into depth and add some other dimensions to it. So that really, I think, informed a lot of the fundamental premise behind remarkable retail, which is that you really have to carve out this truly remarkable, differentiated, highly customer-relevant position and trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody. Maybe you could get away with that 20 years ago, Mm. 10 years ago, but it just gets harder and harder and harder because customers have too many alternatives. And then certainly by virtue of the pandemic, as we, I think we'll probably end up saying every episode, (laughs) so many of these trends got, got accelerated by one, two, three, four years so yeah, so I, I think uh, trying to figure out how to to build a, a sustainable, profitable position there at any real scale is uh, is very very hard. Now you know before we get to di- delving in the great interview with uh, with Casey, I want to touch on the close cousin of retail, which is shopping malls. So when I think Sears, I often think shopping malls, and and you know this this uh, this apop- apocalyptic prediction that actually goes back to like the late 90s, you know, the disintermediation of shopping malls. And do you think now in the COVID era that some of that is going to come back? I mean, you know, for a while, the digital native brands were opening up stores, uh, thinking whether that was because of media or placement or just because they wanted to have an experience. I now hear retailers kind of shifting that emphasis away from stores into just getting ready in their stores for e-commerce or dark stores. But tie those two things together for me. The, the role of shopping malls, first of all, lots closed, but still lots are still vibrant. You know, Bell Harbor and, and yeah. Florida, Yorkdale in, in, uh, in Canada, just to name a couple. What's your thinking on that? You know, people are shopping less. They're going to less places because they don't want to go into 10 places. They want to consolidate some of what they're looking for. Where do you, where do you think it's all going to wind up? Well, anytime this issue comes up, I remind people that uh, shopping centers got very overbuilt. Um, I, I quote the stat in the book. I think that there's like four times uh, shopping center space grew by like 4x uh, in 20 years, whereas the population grew by like 1.4x. One just general backdrop has been there's just way too much space, and that got worse and worse through the 90s and the and the early 2000s. Then you've got just all this competition, and then you've got a lot of the space in these malls being occupied by largely moderate department stores, Macy's, Penny's, et cetera. Those retailers have been struggling really for 20-plus years as well. Right, so right. I, I think we've seen this slow but very pronounced decline mm. in shopping malls and some of their anchor tenants for a long time. You know, I think right now, 
obviously a lot of the department stores and many of the tenants that are in malls tend to be more fashion and apparel related. So if you're talking about specialty stores, a lot of apparel related stores, and that's just a category that's really struggling largely because of work from home and and so forth. So, so I think, um, pretty much all the trends are, are poor, but as you point out, there are, depending on your point of view, a couple hundred shopping centers in the U S the so-called a malls that Mm -hmm. generally are very well leased. They have the best of the best tenants Mm -hmm. and, even though they're certainly not doing great right now, my guess is that as we hopefully start to come out of the the pandemic sometime next year, yeah. that uh, they'll get back pretty close to where they were. The the I think the X factor actually longer term, assuming the vaccine and some semblance of recovery, is that part of the push for revitalizing malls, as I think you know was to replace some of these tenants that have gone out of business or just not doing as well with quote unquote, more experiential sorts of things, yep, <laughs> restaurants, yep. fitness, uh, movies, fitness, right. Theater. Bowling we just alley. hit the, and we just hit the trifecta of things that aren't happening right now in exactly in the pandemic era. So it's, it is going to be choppy waters because, you know, as you described, the model for driving traffic became less about big anchor, tenants like Sears and Kmart and, and became more about bespoke food courts and, you know, great, you know, restaurants and, you know, hope that those people find their way into the mall, just like everyone hoped people would find their way in the mall when you had a big Sears at one end and a Macy's at the other. Right. Right. Exactly. So, so I think that's, that's, uh, that's certainly a big question as to the kind of retenanting mix, how, how yeah, yeah. Uh, material that can be and how quickly that can happen. Well, let's let's have a listen to our interview with uh, Casey because he really dives into and, and helps crystallize some of this with uh, data. So let's have a listen. Well, welcome to the podcast, Casey. Maybe just to kick things off, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the work you do at Deloitte. Sure thing. First of all, thanks, Steve, for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I'm a principal at Deloitte in our Deloitte Consulting Division. And specifically, I focus on our largest retail and consumer products clients. I've been with Deloitte focused in that area for the last 24 years, uh, and I hold the title of Chief Retail Innovation Officer. So for that, I spend a lot of time working with clients about the future of retail and consumer products. Well, I think you and I first got connected right before or during the time you were working on a study called The Great Retail Bifurcation. And I think both of us get some heat for using the word bifurcation way too much. But um, as you know... I started seeing this collapse of the middle or this bifurcation going on a bunch of years ago, as as you guys did. And I mostly talked about it from a more anecdotal or intuitive perspective. So it was great when you guys came out with that study and you actually had data and a lot of perspectives and insights on it. For folks that haven't read it or aren't familiar, could you just give us a little bit of the history of how that study came about and what it says, and then maybe we can dig into some of the details and bring it to the current times. Yes, certainly. So, you know, in, it was roughly 2018 when we took this idea of the great retail bifurcation and started to dig deeper into it. And that's because there was this conventional wisdom in the marketplace that talked about what was happening. You know, it said the conventional wisdom at the time said the future is all digital. 
you know, the large online players are disrupting and, and therefore, you know, many of the traditional retailers are struggling with that disruption uh, and they really need to innovate and reinvent. And, you know, there's a lot of that sort of message that was out there. And while I don't disagree with, with you know, that message sort of in theme, there, was other, there were other things going on at the same time that didn't seem to fit, they, they didn't seem to fit into that narrative. You know, of course, we've saw, uh, you know, the rise of off-price players, the rise of discount. We actually saw the rise of convenience. We saw a lot of things changing in the market that actually didn't get picked up in that narrative. So we took a step back and said, okay, well, let's study what's going on. And the first thing we did uh, is sort of look at the economics of the consumer. And the deeper I dug into the economics of the consumer, the more I realized there was something fundamental going on that wasn't getting picked up you know, really wasn't being talked about at the time, um, you know, in, in sort of the common narrative of the industry. And that resulted in, in our research report that we called the Great Retail Bifurcation. You know, Casey, that paper was really a seminal work because it did delve in and, and unearth or spoke of data points that were really, uh, as you said, they were, they were really in part of discussion. I remember, Steve, you and I were talking about you know, this this bifurcation, as you said, is somehow the, the, the same kind of word kept coming up, you know, with a barbell or bifurcation. I'm really curious about the the broader macroeconomic trends that, that are happening to wealth and, and income. And nested within that, why certain retailers have thrived versus others. I mean, when I look at I look back over the history uh, of the of the 20th century, you know, the 50s and 60s, uh, were go-go years in the American economy where there seemed to be, you know, income seemed to be uh, widely widely dispersed. Uh, uh, household incomes were up, not down, more or less equally. And and that does result in strong retail, right? I mean, just because you're a billionaire doesn't mean you, you're going to buy a thousand pair of jeans. So it's not like they outshop in some ways the average household. So take us to the future of what you saw today, and, and does that have a role to play in this retail bifurcation? Yeah, and if you, if you look at what we, what we studied, um, and by the way, we, we did a, our first report was called the Great Retail Bifurcation, and out of that came a second report that we called the customer is changing, but perhaps not how you think. Because mm. you, you kind of hit on this idea that says, you know, we came from a place where we had a, a largely homogeneous, you know, customer. We had a large middle class and, you know, we created brands that sort of appealed to that large, you know, homogeneous audience. And in both those reports, we discovered, you know, that the customer is changing and it's actually, you know, the fragmentation of the customer base is taking hold. Now, in the great retail bifurcation, we looked at the income, the fragmentation that's sort of happening with incomes. And of course, we started with just income levels and using government data. What we saw was between 2007 and 2017, the highest income cohort, that's the top 20% of households, they grew their income 1,305% more than lowest income cohort, the bottom, which is the bottom 40% of households. Now, as we dug deeper, and that's just an income level, of course, we know that what really matters in retail is disposable income. And so then we started looking at, okay, well, how does that look? And it only got worse because of the rising costs of non-discretionary categories like healthcare, uh, education, things like that. So, you peel that back and it only gets worse at this uh, discretionary disposable income level. And then, of course, that's just income. If you dig deeper, 
and you dig in and you sort of look at net worth of individuals, of course, it only sort of you know magnifies even worse. Because um, you know, when you look at you know stock market strong, housing market strong, but when you look at who really owns those assets that appreciated during this the same time, what you found was that the bottom 80% Bottom 80%, that's the vast majority of the consumers, only received about 7% of this growth um, in net worth that occurred during the same amount of time. So every time you peel back deeper and deeper, you find out there is a really big chasm that only grew during that period between the highest income level and everybody else. Now, I, I don't believe you've updated some of the data. Is that right? Well, if, if you look at what has happened since the pandemic. Well, first of all, we did update the data when we updated it in the customer is changing. We sort of refreshed that somewhat. And what we discovered there, by the way, is we did discover that pre-pandemic, there were some slight improvements that started to occur uh, across the income levels, not at the disposable income levels, but the income, there were some slight improvements that were starting to occur. However, post-pandemic, and now the government hasn't released the data post-pandemic on income levels, discretionary expenses, things like that, that allow you to calculate this using apples to apples. But certainly we've seen base of data that has been released that lead us to believe that post-pandemic, the situation has only accelerated. It's accelerated more. I mean, you can look at unemployment rate and who's been hit the hardest. You can look at certain industries, and it's really sort of forming a... um, you know, an economic recovery forecast that lets us see, you, you may have heard it referred to as the, the K-shaped recovery, where there's a portion of the population that actually is recovering fairly quickly and another portion of the, the population that's not recovering as quickly, which actually is only accelerating. And I fully expect when the government data comes out that we'll see that the, the income bifurcation has accelerated. Yeah, that certainly seems to make sense. And, um, and obviously the stock market's been up quite a bit. And it seems like real estate's doing okay. But as you pointed out, a lot of the wealth assets are held by a comparatively small percentage of the population. I'm wondering if you can comment. I, I know this study was was focused on the U.S. Do you have any sense of some of these dynamics more broadly in other markets? Yeah, I haven't studied deeply whether or not these same things occurred in other markets. Now, anecdotally, uh, as I talk to my colleagues around the globe, I hear that some of these same things are occurring. But there were several things that happened that were very structural and very specific to the U.S., namely the um, the response to you know the banking crisis in 2008, the recession. It's kind of interesting when you look at it because two things happened at the same time in 2008, and these are very specific to the U.S. However, some of these policies you could see show up in other countries as well. Number one, interest rates came way down. So money was very accessible. Capital was accessible. However, at the same time, the regulations around lending and who could get approved to access that money actually increased. So money became cheaper to access if you could access it. And then in the subsequent you know, period of time, that capital and, and sort of the, the productivity of that capital with the stock market, with real estate gains, all of those things really proved themselves out. So in other words, if you were able to play you know, in this cheap capital game, you know, you really, really benefited. And if you weren't able to play, you know, frankly, you didn't participate. And that was one of the things that we believe, you know, led to the acceleration of the bifurcation in the U.S. economy. So I know you touched on this a little bit, but but before we get into kind of the current the current state and maybe looking looking forward towards holiday in 2021, as you as you look at the winners and losers 
kind of from a category perspective, what is, what is the bifurcation really driven in terms of what we saw structurally, I guess, competitively prior to the pandemic? Yeah, certainly. So if you look back at the great retail bifurcation, we didn't really hit on this portion of the study, but we took the income bifurcation and then we jumped over and said, well, how does that manifest itself in terms of the winners and losers? And what we discovered at the time, we we sort of put retailers into one of three categories along a simple value proposition sort of spectrum. We had retailers that were very price focused on one end of the spectrum And on the other end of the spectrum, we had retailers that were more uh, premier oriented. So they were luxury or, you know, they were selling on something other than low, low prices. And of course, in the middle, you had some retailers that were, eh, they're not the cheapest, though they play in the discount game and they try and sell some brands that are premium. So let's call them sort of mixed or balanced retailers in the middle. And what we discovered was during the same time, the, the income bifurcation Uh, was taking hold across the economy, there was something similar happening in terms of retailers and what retailers, you know, were achieving success. And we looked at this across not just stock price, uh, revenue growth, margins, you name it, we kind of looked at at this. And what we discovered was that at the same time the income bifurcation was happening, there was really this great growth happening um, and strength in the discount or off-price sector. So the more price-oriented you were, you were actually achieving success. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you catered to the high-end consumer, you're actually also achieving success. Where there was real weakness is what um, what we refer to and you refer to as sort of the middle, this balanced retailer spectrum. So that's that's sort of what we saw pre-pandemic in the great retail bifurcation. Now, of course, if you fast forward since that point, we actually have seen an acceleration of this uh, where the higher income retailers um, you know, have done okay. However, there's a new sort of filter that you have to put on this. First of all, it was the uncertainty of the economy. And so we, we actually saw savings rates really skyrocket post-pandemic. Um, and therefore, there was this reservation that kind of took over the market. Now, we also saw sort of rise of convenience or health and safety being of great importance. But we also saw price retailers continuing to do, you know, incredibly well uh, at the same time. So, I'm, I, it's going to be a little murkier to take yeah. that great retail bifurcation and play it out, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a direct path because the murkiness comes with the spikes that have occurred around grocery. And, of course, a lot of retailers in particular, those that, that are in the middle, were shut down. And uh, that actually caused uh, some of the market share to shift pretty radically to those retailers that were able to stay open. So there's increased complexity that's sort of added post-pandemic that uh, you have to, you know, you have to fit into the mix. Yeah, I think also just the, um, what I've been referring to as this big reallocation of spending, you know, even if you have um, tamped down demand and some of these macro effects, you've also got you know, work from home, driving a different mix of apparel and certain um, home improvement products and, and things like that. So I think that also, uh, in some cases, I think it makes the middle worse, right? Because a lot of those middle retailers are overly concentrated in apparel, uh, you know, particularly the department store retailers. So I think they've got like an additional um, impact just from the wearing occasions that, that are preferred, at least for the immediate future. You know, what's interesting, we we have a capability that we've built over the last seven years or so that we call Insight IQ. 
And what Inside IQ is, is a collection of, of data that includes both credit card data, location data. We've got health and wellness data. It's a great set of data around the consumer. And certainly we see this really radical you know, shift in what categories they're buying, where they're purchasing, and how health and wellness or you know, convenience sort of adds to that mix. All those things sort of play in. But what it actually tells us is that the consumer, like the retailers who are best able to really understand consumer demand, how and when that consumer demand shifts, and how do you shift your business to go, you know, basically go where the consumer is going. I actually believe that one of the things that's sort of overarching, uh, you know, issue that we have in retail is the lack of agility and responsiveness of retail brands to be able to go to where the, de- the, the demand is. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things we've been helping clients with extensively using Inside IQ to really identify where there's demand. And I don't just mean demand at the macro level, demand at the granular level, where these pockets of opportunity exist. You mix everything we've talked about here. This idea of the consumer is becoming more fragmented. There's different needs that exist at different income you know, cohorts. There's different mm-hmm. needs that exist geographically, different needs that exist uh, with the rise in, you know, the racial um, and, and ethnic, um, you know, differences that are really starting to manifest to become material within the consumer population. Uh, they, they, it all implies differing needs. And yet, sure. yet layer on top of that, you know, this change, this radical change that's been imposed by, by COVID, it actually means that agility and our ability to identify those pockets of opportunity has just skyrocketed in importance. And that's really where we're spending a lot of our time with our clients these days is how, how do you build that as a capability? Not just identify it, that it has happened, but how do you build it as a capability so you can understand it going forward and respond to it? Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. So um, know we're coming up on our time here, but I'm curious, so holiday... Presumably, uh, retailers have their plans pretty well baked at, at this point. In addition to the agility imperative, sounds like a born novel or something like that. What other kinds of things are you suggesting to your clients to, to get them ready for 2021? Okay, so Deloitte recently came out with our holiday forecast. You may have seen this. We're, we're talking about this K-shaped recovery that I've talked about, but also sort of potential for a couple different spending scenarios. But right now, we're, we're projecting that the holiday season will be between 1% and 1.5% over last year. Uh, and But we also recognize there's some uncertainty around that. So clearly, uh, shifting to e-commerce, and for holiday, if you're not focusing on how do you support you know, e-commerce growth, because we're actually projecting that to be between 25 and 30% this year as compared to around 15% in 2019. So a real acceleration there. So without a doubt, we've got to focus there. Uh, in the short run, because there's not much we can do beyond that, given where we are in the season. But as we move to next year, it really has to do with figuring out what categories you should be in. How do you create an an environment that allows your customer to feel safe within your store? How do you make sure that you're selling the products that actually are in demand in the marketplace at the time? And that all requires us to be really monitoring the data because we've seen these, you know, these spikes in demand and those spikes go down real quickly. And then we see, you know, the customer shifts very quickly to, you know, alternative categories. But we certainly know within that, we know that grocery continues to go strong. We know that uh, anything related with home and home improvement is a strong category. We expect that to continue uh, in through the spring. And until, you know, until the pandemic 
is under control until there's a, a scientifically proven approach that helps us reduce uh, the number of cases, then we, we suspect that many of the current trends we see around the consumer wanting to stay home uh, and, and really spin there, you know, continues underway. And that actually may help some retailers as, you know, consumers spend less in restaurants, they spend less on air travel, et cetera. You know, they will be spending some of their money uh, and that money may go more to some of the retailers than maybe some of the other consumer spending categories that we might have traditionally seen. And, and Casey, that last point is what leaves me optimistic about uh, about holiday 2020, uh, though that optimism isn't kind of leveled out equally. I think at the, the high level, as you said, one to one and a half percent growth, but you know, at the 10,000 foot level. But once you get down to the granular level, it's going to be pretty choppy, eh? depending on which format and what you sell and how you sell it. And, and uh, I, I just think that kind of turbulence at the, at the micro level, so to speak, is going to continue through what I've called the COVID era. In other words, um, without, you know, without, as you described, a scientific, uh, scientifically based uh, solution, wh- whether that's a vaccine or, or whatever that looks like, um, it's going to be choppy. And I, it's interesting, you know, I kind of end my thoughts on this is, um, you know, the long term post pandemic, you know, that could be 18 months from today, implications of things like um, this sudden dramatic working at home. It's probably not everybody's going to be always working at home for the rest of uh, their careers, but it's probably not going to go back to where it was, you know, large shops like yours who, who say, well, listen, this worked out okay. Uh, maybe we'll just come together to collaborate versus work. So it'll be, that'll be really interesting to see everything from what retailers sell to where they're located, right? Pull, you know, the, the more local, more Main Street than more downtown. Yeah, I completely agree. All, all yeah. those reasons you mention are, are, are the reasons why retailers need to really improve mm. their capability at monitoring the consumer, understanding the consumer deeply, and being able to pivot their business to where the consumer is going. Because there's a lot of unknown now. There's, there's a lot of unknown. Yeah. And, yeah. and where we came from was an environment where largely retailers had their own internal data by which they looked at their business. And now we really need to look at the consumer in a different way, which requires a different set of information to really understand where that consumer is going. Well, in this conversation, the K-shaped recovery stands for Casey. Casey, thanks so much for, uh, for joining Steve and I on a Remarkable Retail Podcast. We really appreciate you sharing your time and your insights. Steve, any last thoughts? No, I think this is great. Perfect. Well, uh, Casey, thanks so much again, and uh, I wish you a safe week and a successful holiday, and good luck pouring through those numbers. All right. Thank you. So, you know, out of that interview, great interview with, with Casey, I haven't had the chance to uh, meet him. It sounds like I think you know him from your one, at least one of your past lives, so to speak. Right. Uh, you know, what, what strikes me about his insights are this, you know, between this spectrum of efficiency and experience and value and luxury – I'm hearing department store, and if you consider department store the poster child for the middle, that's not always the case. You know, I've heard I've heard Macy's and and Saks say, you know, this is an opportunity for us. Think about how do how do you think it's do you think it's an opportunity for this changing of consumer behaviors and habits and the whoever is left standing kind of approach? I think what they're getting at is that the weaker players are going away or consolidating substantially. So in theory, that leaves a bunch of market share up for grabs. You know, that conceptually, I think that's that's true. Mm-hmm. I will say that 
if you go back, and I know various people have looked at this, and I'm, I'm one of them, <laughs> that said, well, gee, with all these Sears stores closing, and gee, with all these JCPenney stores closing, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, that will mean that this market share, some of this market share that these stores that are closing are going away, are giving up, will migrate to the Macy's of the world. Right. And the folks that have looked at that in depth have basically said, well, we can't really find it. <laughs> or they would have done even worse, apparently, had that okay. not happened. So, you know, I think there's some sense that when these uh, competitors go out of business or they close a lot of stores, that that business is quite dispersed and will tend to go where it was leaking in the first place, which is primarily to off-price retail and secondarily to uh, folks like Amazon. You know, it remains to be seen. I think the question is, I mean, I fundamentally believe, and I think Saks and Macy's are a little bit different. I fundamentally believe that a department store that is in the middle is going to continue, that category or segment is going to continue to contract. So the pie will be ever smaller, but can Macy's pick up an incredible amount of market share and give themselves mm-hmm. a much more financially viable business? I, I think that's plausible. But for them to really grow, they have to steal share back from the places they lost it to over the past decade. And I think that's that's really a proposition. You know, Saks is a little bit different because the luxury consumer, I think, you know, that that sector, while it's it's kind of mature, has been performing way, way better than the moderate department store space over the last decade or so. And there's not well, nearly and, as much um, online competition. So that's a little bit different different factor. And it's even had a bit of a, a, a tailwind with the pandemic because you've got a class of super savers who basically are global travelers who aren't globally traveling and are shopping shopping locally and their expenses are way down. So that you've got this mix of things that probably benefit. And Casey alluded to this or spoke about it directly, this this benefit on the high end on the luxury end is, is real because you've got a lot of people who are, you know, it counters it's counterbalanced of course by people who aren't, you know, touring or tourists coming into America or Canada or anywhere else. So that lack of movement, is just so, you know, tro- so kind of tricky to figure out. Well, I was just going to say, I think the thing with luxury from, from uh, my time working at Neiman Marcus and mm-hmm. with some clients is that there are a lot of, a lot of spending. Number one is what you point out, which is, travel related, which is obviously challenged for a while mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also galas and, you know, sure. uh, professional work environments and so forth. So if, if the work from home thing persists and we're not going to the theater and we're not having weddings and, you know, the, mm. the way we used to, uh, that that's going to have a dampening effect on, on their sales, even, even where there is this discretionary income and wealth effect, which I agree with you is a, is a big one, but maybe they're buying a Peloton or a new laptop, right? Not, oh, right, right. not a Oscar de la Renta gown or a Brioni suit. <laughs> but, um, mm. but the other, the other thing with luxury, like the true luxury, the real high end guys like Saks and Neiman's is my sense is that they haven't done a particularly good job of attracting younger customers, mm. even, even in the, the before times, as you like to say. So, so I think, uh, they've got some headwinds in terms of the wearing occasions, um, offset perhaps by the wealth and discretionary income, rich getting richer kind of phenomenon. Uh, but to really get sustained growth, they're going to have to figure out how to attract younger customers to basically replace the older customers that are literally dying off or just spending less as they retire. 
A classic uh, dilemma or classic challenge in retail, right? How do I get new customers in without alienating the ones I have? And how do I manage that transition? And how do I get them? And how do I treat my brand? Let's end on a a discussion around, um, you wrote an article that basically I'm paraphrasing, but I might be more accurate, the useless middleman, (laughs) like the, 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 if there's the collapse of the middle, this is the collapse of the middleman. In other words, there's brands that are going more so now than ever direct to consumer. Now, this isn't new. You make that point. We were talking off mic about this. I worked for Levi Strauss in the late 90s, mid 90s, and we, we started selling direct. You know, we, we looked at the concentration risk, as I'm sure many brands do, and go, oh my goodness, I got three or four, you know, big department stores that account for a vast majority of my sales. Like, how do I address this? And how do I address margin challenges? And so this is not new. It's sometimes perceived as being new, but it's not a new discussion. You've had lots of experience around this. And, and give me your thoughts on, on you know, these changes of consumer habits that have happened. Has this accelerated? There's that word again. But has it accelerated the business model and the adoption of and or the, you know, the eradication of middlemen going, to, you know, now direct one by one to brands? Yeah, I mean, I think it's harder and harder. I mean, if you think about the role of a great retailer uh, selling products from their vendors, right? There's a, an aspect of taking the inventory risk, investing in the real estate, curating a great assortment against customer needs and so forth. I mean, that, that's what particularly these kind of classic department stores, you know, Selfridges, Harrods, <laughs> Neiman Marcus, Holt Renfrew, et cetera. And you can see a flight to quality there, right? Like you take a brand like uh, Canada Goose, which uh, narrows to, you know, states that we're going to have we're going to flip it, the model on its head. We're going to vastly more hold. We're going to vastly more direct than wholesale, but we're going to pick top tier retailers who can, you know, who really represent the brand well. And and there's you know half a dozen of them in Canada. I'm sure there's an equal half a dozen in the U.S. Right? Yeah, exactly. So so I think what what was happening over time, number one, because you could see, as we talked about just a minute ago, the the department store sector contracting. I think a lot of these brands were starting to worry about distribution, right? But also, I think what really changed in terms of digital disruption was it was a lot easier to imagine how you, as a vendor, could have a direct relationship with the consumer. Mm. You know, that wasn't so easy to do fifteen or twenty years ago, but. Now, if you put up a I'm website, I'm laughing because I didn't, you know, I didn't even have Google AdWords back those days. Like priming the pump, right? Was very, very hard, right. very difficult. But you know, over time, mm. as you could build out a website, as you had ways to market that website, you could build out fulfillment capabilities. Um, I mean, ironically, I think some of this probably got accelerated because a lot of retailers were asking for dropship capabilities, right. which meant that the vendors had to figure out how to send one, to do it. two, three items at a time, <laughs> as opposed to the packs that, not to get too inside baseball, right? But, you know, the yeah, distribution yeah. model for selling into department stores is different than sending it to consumers. So, so I think they started to flex those muscles. And I think they started to say, well, well, number one, we want to be more controlling of our brand. Uh, you know, how it's represented on the web, but in many cases also opening their own stores as folks like Canada Goose and others have, have done for years. But also now we can have these customers in our database and we can market to them directly and we can do customer research. And so the benefits of having 
a direct relation, the strategic benefits of having a direct relationship with the consumer, the ability, I think, to control mm-hmm. your brand, whether it's online or in your own stores, uh, was a big motivating factor because I think also there started to be more concern about the proliferation of brands at retail and all the promotional stuff and markdowns. And, you know, that just got to be messier yeah. and messier over time. Yeah. So I think there were some Still pretty is. powerful strategic reasons. Well, I love that point because uh, when I think about I did a bunch of years of Black and Decker in Canada. And, you know, your objective as a brand is to make sure that people will seek you out. In other words, I, you know, when you have those big listing meetings with the big retailers, you say, listen, if you don't list my product, they're going to go somewhere else because they're, I'm going to make sure they come looking for it. And, and you just, you know, you really crystallize that for me because if I own the direct customer relationship, whether I sell to them directly or have them go buy it, you know, you get another method, another way to have that discussion, even if you're having it with your top tier retailers to say, listen, they're going to, they're going to come looking for it. you need to list this and, and let's work out our business arrangement together. That's interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the, the great accelerant even b- before the pandemic hmm. was how more and more customer journeys were starting in a digital channel. You know, if you think about the old days, right talked about, right with uh, Seth last week in, in the episode of on scarcity was, you know, you had to go down to a store largely to figure out what you wanted or read advertising, traditional mass advertising. But once the internet really developed and mm. you could Google essentially where, where, you know, a brand or a particular type mm-hmm. of product, if, if you weren't showing up as a manufacturer's brand in those search results, you are potentially losing some of your edge. So I think this kind of digital first or, mm. or digitally led customer journey, as that started to become in many cases the predominant way that folks were starting their journey, even if they ended up buying in a physical store, I think it really put the pressure on these these manufacturer brands to really show up there in a powerful way. And then once they did that, they could often capture that customer data and start the relationship there. So I think that that really, I think, started to take hold five, six, seven years ago. And so I think you've seen a lot of different brands, whether it's the luxury brands really upping their investment in, in e-commerce in their own stores and pulling back on some of the wholesale, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, there's been a lot of news recently about Nike. They started on this um, D2C emphasis about five or six years ago and have really been pulling the trigger on a bunch of things of late where they're pulling back distribution uh, off of Amazon, away from some of the um, big accounts they had before, and really upping their game in e-commerce, but also deploying a lot of their own stores in a bunch of different formats, so controlling that relationship with the customer. Well, we're three episodes in, and I think that's one of the first times you've mentioned the word Amazon, but it's not going to be the last. Our next episode, we're going to delve deep into uh, thinking about Amazon as you, as you do in the book where you got a great guest Jason Goldberg who uh, who really brings an expertise of, of pulling apart both uh, both Amazon and, and just understanding new retail so I'm really looking forward to that it's been a, a you know it's a nice segue to to this episode and and uh, moving forward with uh, the balance and and listen I want to uh, special thanks to our our very special guest Casey Loba for being um, our guest on this episode of the remarkable retail podcast and if you like what you heard you can subscribe on Apple Spotify or your favorite podcast platform please rate and review 
and be sure and recommend our podcast to a friend or colleague in the retail brand or CPG industry. I'm Steve Dennis. You can learn more about me at my website, stephenpdennis.com. And be sure and look for me on LinkedIn and Twitter for my latest insights. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast. You can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone. And Steve, looking forward to talking to you next week and the weeks after.